Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at the last verses of this chapter, a rather lengthy passage uh, by normal standards, and you probably know what that means. We probably won't finish it today, and we'll probably be back in it next week or week after next. But it is an important passage, and it's important we read it in its entirety. And it may be that I actually get through the text and some points that I want to make because I want to make them all together, but it is a passage that we will definitely come back to, I have a feeling, uh, over the next couple of weeks. In this passage, you realize that the writer is following up on, on a series of exhortations that he's given in verses 1 through 17. Uh, we talked about how coming out of chapter 11 in the faith chapter and how over and over again he showed by example that salvation is by faith in the coming Messiah for the Old Testament saints. It was, it was, but it was by faith. It wasn't by works. It wasn't by keeping the law. It wasn't by something that they did. But it was rather by faith in the promises of Almighty God. And, and because of that great roll call of faith, because of that great expression of faith that has been seen for so long, he comes to verse 1 of chapter 12 and he starts it with therefore. And, and he, he recounts there on the basis of the faith that you've seen in these believers and on the basis of you also exhibiting faith in Jesus Christ, here's some exhortations for you to live by. He starts out by saying in, in verse 1, he says, we are encouraged to lay aside every encumbrance and sin by faith. Again, everything he says is on the basis of faith, and that is on the basis of grace, God's power, God's spirit working within us. And he says in verse 1, listen, because of the faith that you have in Christ, you ought to lay aside every encumbrance, every weight, everything that keeps you from serving Christ and running the race with Christ as you ought to. Lay it aside. And those encumbrances tend to be sins. Perhaps little sins, as we would classify them. Sins that just sort of get in the way. The sins that sort of distract us. Sins that sort of cause us to trip and stumble. Lay those aside. Get rid of them, he says, by faith in Jesus Christ. Second thing he says in verse 2, he says we're called to fix our eyes or to focus on Jesus. I mean, isn't it amazing that he says, look, keep that focus where it ought to be. Your focus is not to be on yourself. Your focus is not to be on your circumstances. Your focus is to be on the author and the finisher, the author and the completer, the beginner and the completer of your faith. It's Christ always and Christ only that we're to focus on. So he says because of your faith, focus on, fix your eyes on, keep looking at Jesus who began your faith and who will finish your faith who will do as Paul said to the Philippian Christians in 1.6, He who began a good work, I'm confident, I know this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto that day. He is at work. Look at him. Trust in him. And we talked about how Christianity is the only faith, the only religion, the only religious tradition that has the, the, the truth and reality that our beginner is also our finisher. Muhammad can say, oh, here's how you ought to go. Try as best you can. 
Buddhism can say, here are some principles for life. You ought to live by them and do the best you can. But in Christ, he says, this is, Christ says, this is what life is in God. You not only start in it, you're not on probation. You have already graduated. I will finish my work in your life. It's a promise. It's a fact. He goes on and says in verses 4 through 11, or the lengthy passage we looked at, we're not only are we to fix our eyes on Christ, we're to do that because we are called to expect and to endure discipline. That discipline will come about in, in ways of suffering sometimes, in ways of difficulty sometimes. But we always see it as the discipline of God in our life. God shaping us, God forming us, God making us what He's calling us to be. And He places that in our life for a purpose. He says you're called to... Uh, to expect it, don't be surprised by it, and you're called to endure it. Verses 12 and 13 talked about we're called to strengthen weak brothers and sisters. We talked about that for two weeks, really. We emphasized that and, and how we are to be not just about ourselves. You know, your call in Christ is not just for your salvation. Your call in Christ is for ministry to one another. And so when there are weak brothers and sisters, when there are brothers and sisters who are stumbling, who are struggling in their own walk with Christ, you are called to strengthen those who are weak, to strengthen those whose knees are feeble. You're to lift them up and hold them up and encourage them in their walk. I mean, it's an exhortation to covenant community. We talk about the covenant here. We talk, we've talked about our, in our new member class that we went through uh, over the last month. And we, we realize that what we're talking about in this passage is we are to strengthen weak brothers and sisters. We're not to look down on them. We're not to say, oh, they just can't handle it. No, we're to go and put our arms around them and, and love them and encourage them and hold them up if we have to until they get strong enough in Christ to stand alongside of us. And then verse 14, he, he encouraged us. He, he said we, we are called to pursue peace and holiness. Called to pursue peace with all men as is much possible while living in the truth, while proclaiming the truth. But sometimes peace will be an impossibility. But we're to pursue it with all men. That's to be our desire. That's to be our motivation. And also we're to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we looked at the two-edged sword there, uh, what the writer could be saying. He could be saying, you pursue holiness as the people of God because without holiness in your life, you will not see God. You will not stand before his throne in heaven one day to praise him that we sang about. But there's a second edge that says you're to pursue holiness because without holiness in your life, holiness in the church, others will not see Christ. Others will not see the Lord because they see it through his body. They see it through his manifestation on earth, through his body. And so, I mean, those are tough exhortations. And, and the writer spends a, a good amount of time saying, this is what you're to be about. This is what you're to do on the basis of faith. Now, he comes to verses 18 through 29. And here he kind of says, okay, let me remind you why that's so important. Let me remind you the motivation for those things I've just talked about. Let me remind you where you are in this relationship with Christ right now. And he talks about two mountains. Uh, you could say, as I, I titled the sermon, I, I, I titled it, The Mountain of law, of law and the Mountain of Grace. 
Because that's what he's talking about in these two comparisons, these two contrasts that he's making here. Hear the word of the Lord as I read this to you. This is God's word. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels and, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth that is Moses much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of the created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude for, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. I want you to see several things here in this contrast. Basically, when it comes to that first verse, verse 18, when he says, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, uh, and to blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, there's a statement there simply that we are in the realm of grace, not the realm of law. That God's grace has been demonstrated in this new covenant relationship. Remember all through the book of Hebrews, don't, don't forget this when you come to any passage like this, the, the interest of the writer is that he in every sense contrasts and demonstrates the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Chapter 8, he spent a, 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 lot of, a lot of time, a large amount of time saying, listen, here is what the new covenant is all about. And if, there was, if the old covenant were perfect, there'd be no need for a new covenant. Because, but because the old covenant was deficient, it is obsolete and is passing away. And the new covenant has come in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's important that you see that, that contrast that this writer is always wanting us to see throughout this book. And so he comes here and he basically says, understand, you are now under the covenant of grace. You are now in the realm of grace, not the realm of law. And he starts out by giving seven images. Just in those first verses, verses 19 and, and 20 and 21, basically, when he talks about the images that took place on Mount Sinai. 
the mountain of law. Uh, Brother Scott read just a bit ago uh, the passage out of, out of Exodus 19 that gave us the picture of what took place as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai where he gave the law, where he spoke to the people. And as they got there, those things began to unfold and it was a very terrifying thing. And that's what the writer here describes. He said there are seven images of the Old Covenant that drive home the terrors of the Old Covenant. First of all, he talks about a mountain that cannot be touched. You know, the, the prohibition was given there by God to Moses to give the people. Now, once they've been consecrated, once they've been set apart to worship, but once my spirit, once my smoke, my presence has descended on the mountain, they're not to even touch the edge of the mountain. The mountain's a holy place, and they're not a holy people in their own right. And so if they even touch it, or if their donkey touches it, or if their cow touches it, or their goat touches it, if, an, if an, a beast, an animal, even touches the edge of it, they will be stoned. They will die because they have touched the holy place. Wow. Now that, my friend, is a fearful, terrible terrifying thing. That mountain that cannot be touched. And then he describes it. He says it's burning with fire. It's a blazing fire. Uh, we all have some fear of fire if we have any intelligence about us at all. We know that fire is something that, that destroys. Fire is something that if it gets loose in your house will burn your house down. Fire is something that if you reach out and touch it just to be cute, as some kids sometimes do. It burns them, and it, it blisters them, and it causes enormous pain. Fire is terrifying and a terrible thing, if left by itself. And that's the way the fire on this mountain was. We'll find out in, in verse 29 that our God is a consuming fire. We'll talk about what that means, if not today, next week, or next time. But, but, but the point that I want to make here is that this mountain was burning. And there was darkness. He says it was a burning fire and it was dark. Darkness descended on it through the cloud of smoke of the presence. Darkness is another thing that brings about fear. Darkness is another thing that, that hides the unknown. And when we're afraid to go into it, we're afraid to touch it. Even though these people were, were declared don't go into it, there's still something fearful about the darkness. There's gloom. There's the, the, the fear leads to a, a gloominess and, and that's what the old covenant does. The law does because the law shows us that we cannot obey God. The law shows us, Sinai shows us that we are incapable of pre pleasing God in our own right. And so there's gloom. And there's a storm. The, the New American Standard says whirlwind, but it's really the, the idea of a storm is brewing on the mountain as they look at it. And then there's a trumpet that blasts, and then there's a voice. The seventh thing is there's a voice speaking that literally terrified the people. Uh, you think they weren't terrified? Look at what it says in verse 19. And the sound of words, that's the voice, the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Can you see all these Israelites saying, I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't let, the, don't let the voice say anything else. The voice is terrifying. That's what the law is. The law was given for a purpose, but the purpose of the law was not to save. 
The purpose of the law was not to make God accessible and close. The purpose of the law was not to develop a relationship. The purpose of the law, as Paul goes into great extent in the book of Romans, the purpose of the law was to show you that you were in real trouble. And me, that I was in real trouble left in my own self. If I depend upon the law, the law merely shows me that there's nothing I can do about it. Even Moses, even Moses says in verse 21, and it was so terrible, so terrible was the sight, that even Moses said, I am full of fear and I'm trembling. And Moses knew what it was all about. God had told him what it was all about. And yet even Moses, knowing what he knew, was full of fear and trembling. Sinai is not a great place to be in our day. If you're standing before Sinai expecting God to receive you, the writer is saying you are standing on the wrong ground. Because Sinai doesn't save. He says, ah, but, that, that word but, verse 22, we talk about that a lot. When that word but is used, listen closely. You know, because it's used in Scripture to say, you know, you have no hope with what I just said. But, with what I'm about to say, there's great hope. And he says in verse 22, but you, that is those who are in this new covenant relationship, those who have come to Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to the place where there's the sprinkling of blood, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, better than the blood of animals. <coughs> is the emphasis he's making. And so he, he takes those seven things about Sinai and now he gives seven images of the new covenant, Mount, Mount Zion. Now, we know there's a physical Mount Zion. It's where the temple was built and it's, it's right in the middle of the, of, of the nation even that we call today Israel. It's right, Mount Zion was a very holy place. But, but the writer here is not concerning himself with the earthly Mount Zion. He's talking about a heavenly Mount Zion. He's talking about a heavenly place where Christ has done his work in your life and in my life. And he gives these seven images. He says first that this new covenant mountain, this Mount Zion, is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And there is a sense in which we are looking for it. We are, we are longing for it. We are anticipating that heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, that city of God that we will dwell in for all of eternity. But there's also a sense that if we are in the new covenant and we are in Christ, we already have it. We're already dwelling in His presence. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the promise of the covenant. The second thing about this heavenly Mount Zion is that there's thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. It reminds me of the picture in, in, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 where there's a celebratory 
uh, expression going on in heaven around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the God who was and who is and who is to come. And there's just this enormous, joyful praise of Him in the heavenly places. And, and, and that's what the writer is wanting us to see. There are myriads of angels. Literally, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. There were angels on Mount Sinai, but they didn't even begin to touch what's on this heavenly Mount Zion. Then he talks about the church of the firstborn, the assembly of the angels, and, and, and this, this myriad of angels, the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn. Who is the firstborn? The Lord Jesus. That's right, Elsie. That's exactly who he is. The church of the firstborn, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now this is a this is something you don't want to miss because this is we are part of His church, which is His church universal. This is a this is every believer that's ever believed. This is every believer on earth and every believer that's now in heaven, a part of the first the, the church of the firstborn. Don't miss that. And so, if you're a part of the church of the firstborn here on earth. When you die and you leave this earth, you don't leave the church. You just graduate into a greater expression of it. And you're there in the presence. This new covenant has the, the church of the firstborn. And it says our names are recorded. Our names are written in heaven, enrolled in heaven, those who are in Christ. Fourth thing about this new covenant is, there is, the, is that God is the judge. And to God, the judge of all. God will judge all people, period. No one will escape that. Even the ones who want to argue and fight all day about God whom they don't believe is there, but want to argue against Him, He will be their judge. You know, they stand and say, God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. They fight Him all the time. They, they want us to stop believing in Him because He's not there, according to them. He's there. And he is not silent. He is there. He has spoken and he will further speak in judgment. Now those who are in the church, in, in the church of the firstborn, those who are in the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, uh, whose names are enrolled in heaven, they have already been judged by the work of Christ according to scripture. But he will judge every person, every human being that ever lived. He also says... In this new Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, this holy Mount Zion, are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous which have been made perfect. Who are the spirits of the righteous? It's you and me, if we're in Christ. We have been declared righteous. We have been imputed with His righteousness, Paul makes clear in Romans. We have been given this, this gift of, of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. And we are the righteous ones. Here on this earth, we may not act like it sometimes. We may not look like it sometimes. We may blow it, we may stumble, we may fall sometimes. But still, we're the righteous ones but he says, in this heavenly Jerusalem, this finality of this Mount Zion, that those who are the righteous ones will be made 
perfect. No more temptation of sin. No more power of sin. No more presence of sin. No more anything but perfect righteousness by those who are in those who are in Christ. Well, spirits of righteousness made perfect. Sixth thing about this new covenant is that we will be there with Jesus, who is the mediator. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And will be sprinkled with blood. The seventh thing is sprinkled with blood. That's not blood of animals and not the blood of Abel. That in Hebrews 11 it says after, after Cain killed Abel, that Abel's blood cried out from the earth. It still spoke after he died. And it spoke of, of true worship. And it spoke of righteousness and the enemy of righteousness. And that spoke, but it didn't speak anything like the blood of Christ. Oh, didn't say anything like the blood of Christ. This blood of Christ that we are sprinkled with. In the, in the old covenant, you remember we talked about it, uh, they would come and they would, they would offer sacrifices and then the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the people as a symbol of being covered by the blood of that sacrifice. And that was good. For about 30 seconds. Temporary. The blood of Christ is not like that blood. When we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ, we are washed by that blood, we are cleansed by that blood, and we are declared righteous by that blood by the judge of all creation. Oh man, it's it's coming. It, 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 it's a it's a reality. The old covenant, Mount Sinai, has passed away. The new covenant, Mount Zion, in the heavenly places, has entered in. And, and, and then he comes to verses 25. And he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven, Lord Jesus Christ. He says there's a greater judgment in this new covenant than there was in the old covenant. There's a greater judgment because there's a greater responsibility. There's a greater accountability in this new covenant. And, and those who hear the new covenant proclaim, those who hear the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel proclaim, and who say, no, I don't think so, and turn away, their judgment will be far greater than any of those who heard Moses and turned away from it. Because this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. This is his word. And I love the way he states it. In verse 26, he said, And his voice shook the earth then, the voice from Sinai was so resounding that it, it was like an earthquake. The earth was shaking. Said, But he has now promised. He's, he's promised saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Not just the earth will be judged, but the whole cosmos. Everything is under his direction and judgment. 
And this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Let me give you a paraphrase of that verse. You've heard it all your life. You can't take it with you. That's what he's saying. He's saying the things of this earth will be shaken. The things of this earth will literally be destroyed. All these created things, these are, these are merely temporal things so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, what are the things that cannot be, uh, be shaken? That is your relationship to Jesus Christ. That is, as is said in Scripture, the treasure that you've laid up in heaven by your service in the, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ. That's the stuff that can't be shaken. That is untouchable by rust and moth and thieves and everything else. It's untouchable. That cannot be shaken. Everything else, this pulpit will be destroyed. It will be shaken. My bank account will be shaken and destroyed. My popularity will be shaken and destroyed. Your home will be shaken and destroyed. Your stocks and bonds and whatever else you've got will be shaken and destroyed. Only that which is unshakable will remain. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Oh, man. Since we have received, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, service with reverence and awe. I think what he's saying in verse 29 is this, or 28 is this. We as believers right now, have to be careful that we're not relying just on past grace. Now hear me. This is important. We're not just saying, well, God showed me His grace and I trusted Christ and I was saved and so everything's all right now. I don't need any more grace. He said, no, no, no. You've got to understand, your orientation as a believer ought to be on future grace. You need His grace tomorrow and today just as much as you did yesterday. You need His grace that is, 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 is yet to come for the walk with Christ just as much as you did the day you were saved. Future grace. Looking ahead to what God is going to use us to do in the world in which we live. Let me, let me say three things about that, and I'll be done except for talking about verse 29. Yeah, i got to come back to that. I think there are three things that we need to ask ourselves as Grace Baptist Church as a whole and as individual people within Grace Baptist Church. Now listen to me. This is important. Number one, are we calling people to grace? I don't mean calling them to Grace Baptist. Are we calling them to the grace of Christ? Are we calling them to Mount Zion? 
Or we call him to Mount Sinai? Do we tell people, hey, you know, you really need to live better? You need to try harder? You need to do all you can to try and, uh, you know, please God? That's Sinai, folks, and that's death. Are we calling them to grace, the grace of Christ? Are we saying Sinai will fail you? You know, I, I, I'm going to get in trouble with this statement. I know it. I'm just going to preface it and I'll take my lumps. It really bugs me that we get so, so incensed about getting the Ten Commandments put up. That's Sinai. Why don't, we, why don't we put a cross up and the gospel? That's Zion. Now I realize the Ten Commandments should point people to Zion. They should. But listen, if we just say, here are the Ten Commandments, now look at those and try to live by them, we're damning people to hell for the rest of their lives. If we're saying, hey, here's ten laws... Good laws, every one of them given by God, they're good. But boy, if you'll just try to do that, you'll be accepted by God. That is not the word of Christ. That's the lie of Satan. Are we calling people to grace? Or are we pointing people to the law? Secondly, are we calling people to relationship? Now, I know that's, that's been overused in a lot of ways, and, you know, the, the thing, we're not a religion, we're a relationship. I know that's all true, but this is deeper than that. Are we calling people to a relationship with Christ and then a relationship with us? Christianity that does not know relationship within a community, covenant community uh, expression is not biblical Christianity. calling people to grace or are we calling people to relationship with Christ first and then with us in other words if we're telling somebody that they need to come to Christ for a relationship with Christ are we willing then to put our arms around them and embrace them and say I'll walk with you I'll be your friend I'll be your brother I'll be your sister in this covenant expression Are we calling people to grace? Are we calling people to relationship? Thirdly, are we calling people to joy? In other words, when they look at your life, do they see joy in your life because of your relationship with Christ and with one another? Or do they see sort of a, hmm, sourness? I love what Joy Davidson, or excuse me, Davidman said in her a little book, Smoke on the Mountain. She, reflects, she relates this story. She's talking about the Lord's Day and, and how the Lord's Day has become. This was written years ago. But she tells this, relates to the Lord's Day. She calls it the Sabbath, but let's call it the Lord's Day. She relates to it, reflects on it by telling about a, a Martian anthropology student from Mars who was sent to Earth to do a study on earth, you know, on this assignment. And, and the student sweeps over the United States on a fine Sunday morning and he's writing furiously with his writing tentacles, she says. 
And in his report, he notes that creatures of the third planet are obviously sun worshipers. And this one day in seven is set aside for serious religious observance. She says, the reason she knows that is the, the sometimes loud and rowdy rituals are conducted in open air, drawing large crowds to arenas or bodies of water. Some of the religion's mystics address a holy ball, a solar symbol by themselves or in groups of three or four with long clubs in open green fields. Others go down to the ocean, stripping themselves almost naked and hurling themselves in ecstasy into the waves. When they are, exhaust, uh, when they are exhausted, then they anoint their bodies with holy oils and lay flat on the ground, surrendering completely to the deity. The Martian goes on to tell that there is a small group of unbelievers who have rejected sun worship altogether. They dress soberly and gather behind closed doors in buildings that have stained glass, obviously designed to keep the sun out. Their faces and gestures demonstrate none of the almost orgasmic religious frenzy in which the sun worshipers pursue their devotions. In fact, they almost appear placid, indicating minds blank of thought or emotion. Reflecting then on contemporary Christian believers and their lack of sheer joy in their Christianity, Davidman asked this question. Was the Martian wildly wrong or fantastically right? Is there more joy in a in a game of golf or a day at the beach? Is there more joy in an arena filled with well, I'll pick on my own with Crimson Tide people. Is there, is there greater joy there than there is when we enter into the presence of the living God? We enter here like we've come to take our medicine. It's going to take an hour or so. And we'll get it done. And then we'll ease ourselves back out. And then we'll go do something we really enjoy. I mean... I think the Martian was right. We so often have the whole concept of joy so convoluted that we find joy in the things that will be shaken. We find joy in the things that will be destroyed. We find joy in the things that will not last. And eternal things we find rather boring. Are we calling people to joy? Here's a great motivation for that. Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. Not just a fire, but an all-consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 makes that image. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.8 uses that same image. And there are other places in Scripture. But, but the image of God as a consuming fire is an image of God's judgment. 
You know what fire does? I've already mentioned one thing it does. It really does two things. Fire either destroys or fire purifies. It's the only two things it does. Fire is not ambivalent. Fire is not neutral. Fire is not such that, well, it may do something, it may not do anything, it may just sit there. It's not like the fire that Moses saw that burned and did not consume the bush. That's the only time that's ever happened that we have recorded. Fire either destroys or fire purifies. Our God is a consuming fire. And in your life, and in the lives of every person that's ever set foot on this planet for all of its history, will face God in one of those two ways. If you're in Christ, you'll be purified. If you're in Christ, it'll burn away the dross, it'll burn away the junk, It'll burn away the idols. It'll burn away the stuff that you don't need. If you're not in Christ, it is a consuming fire that destroys. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a loving God to me. Oh, he's very loving. But he's loving with a holy love. He's loving with a love that, that is greater than anything you can ever imagine. I, I read an article last week. I can't remember who wrote it, but, but I, I love the statement it made. It, it said, don't believe for a minute that God loves with unconditional love. He loves with something far greater than that. It's perfect love that either purifies or destroys. God's a great God. Our God's a mighty God. Our God is a God who, is, who has revealed himself two ways. And one way shows us we need the second way. Sinai and Zion. The question I'm left to ask, beyond the ones I've already asked every believer here, are you calling people to grace? Are you calling people to relationship? Are you calling people to joy? Is this... If you're hearing an unbeliever, never trusted Christ. I call you to consider Him who shed His blood that we might live, that we might be cleansed, that we may have, that we may have the joy and the relationship and the grace of God. And that's consider Him. And come to Him by faith. Come to Him in trust. Come to Him in belief. Come to Him in dependence on nothing else. Not your good works. Not your mom or your dad. Not your, not your wife or your husband. But come to Him on one basis and one basis alone. Lord Jesus, I need You. And You're my only hope. And I place my trust in You alone let's pray together
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to consider the mountain of law and the mountain of grace. I want you to consider what it means to have an orientation of future grace in your life. you to consider what it means that Christ is the author and the finisher of your faith perhaps where you're sitting you need to say Lord Jesus I need you I don't understand all that. I don't. I'm not. I, I, that, that's it's kind of foreign to me. But, but Lord, I know one thing. I don't want to be caught on Mount Sinai. I want to know Christ. I want to know joy. I want to know relationship. I want to know your grace. I want to know your forgiveness. I want to know your strength. Just call out to Him. This preacher can't save you and this church can't save you, but Christ can. Father, into your hands we commit this time. In Jesus' name.